Our next bonus episode on Patreon is called Forgiving Those Who Have Hurt Us. Join our community of self-love leaders on Patreon, where we provide members with exclusive content, clothing, special updates, and access to our self-love movement community. Help us continue to connect, empower, and inspire others by signing up at patreon.com slash spiritofselflovepodcast. Also remember to please share this podcast with anyone and everyone you love. Thank you. Allegretta Alive is a self-love coach, empowerment speaker, spiritual awakening guide, and adoptee advocate. In the self-love movement, there are no followers, only leaders, creators of their own joy, heroes of their own story, champions of a compassionate world. The Spirit of Self-Love podcast reminds us that we are all miraculous beings with purpose and can help humanity elevate and evolve by returning within. Do you remember who you really are? Malou Wilder is a multidimensional artist and the founder of both the Human Unity Movement and the Mindfulness Initiative. Malou is passionate about bringing people together around the ideals of authentic creative expression, compassion, and a sense of unity. By blending long-standing traditional methods of meditation instruction with a modern mindset, Malou presents powerful practices in a dogma-free way. Additionally, he is the author of the book, Being Human Now, Reclaiming Personal Power Moment by Moment, available on Amazon using the link in this episode description. In our conversation, we discuss the courage of going into our fears how to take inspired action for causes we care about, and how to build a heroic community by showing up as the fully miraculous beings we are. We recorded this conversation in October 2019, and we're releasing it now in March 2020 during a massive shift in collective consciousness and human connection. Months ago, we were talking about being leaders of a new earth and transforming our world joyfully. I know that you are listening to this episode today because you too are leading our transformation through new earth. I'm excited to share the infinite and profound wisdom of Malou Wilder with you. Our conversation starts now. A couple years ago, I wrote a book called Being Human Now, and the focus was really on realizations that I had in my own life, primarily based around the idea that we've been taught largely that we need to somehow win against ourselves Mm. or win against our own human nature to be successful. The entire theory of the book is that if we are able to change our perspective to one of inspiration instead of need, to one of self-love instead of self-defeat, then we're able to really find our own true path. Our abilities, our callings, our joy is all present within this really very simple act of wholeheartedly accepting what we are, which is quite difficult when you've been raised in a culture of what I like to say as hating humanity. Mm-hmm. 
What did you discover about being human while you were writing this? The standard that we're taught is that you need to win against life. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is that if someone were to have all of their basic needs met naturally without having to work hard for them, that they would be lazy and that they would never do anything at all. And I would say that the most profound thing that I found throughout this entire process was that that's simply not true. When our needs are met, we come into a place of inspiration, and that's when we begin to do the work that we're really built to do. As soon as I changed my work, following my own dreams and listening to my internal compass based upon excitement and based upon possibility and based upon potential, which sounds really trite at this point <laughs> in, the, in the sort of self-empowerment or spiritualist world. Uh, but, but truly, when you, when you do the things that push you in a way that feels joyful, you find your way easily. Very little struggle. Yeah. The things that sound trite often are trite until we've experienced them for ourselves and then they become so true. <laughs> but I really liked what you said in all that to focus more of our energy towards opportunity and potential that exists and not so much on the limitations of the human experience. I think I began to realize that all of the sufferings that I had had in my life, along with all of the, the positive joys and such, really serve me in my work and mm. really can, can serve the people around me as well. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, having a genetic anxiety disorder, it was something that I could examine in my own life and in my own practices of meditation. And through understanding how to dance with it, then share that information with others. And it, it was literally by, by going into the things that I feared the most about myself, I began to really find gold. It was, it was like mining. <laughs> how did you find that courage to go into those places that you feared? To some degree, I was really lucky enough to receive advice and teachings from spiritual teachers that said, lean in, feel everything. There's no human emotion that's off limits. There's no thought that's off limits. Of course, there are actions that should be off limits, but whatever's going on in your mind and heart is, it is, and there's no way away from it. Mm. And I was really given that advice in many different ways. I, I think I was given 35 books that could describe that process and several meditation practices that could describe that process. When I really began to lean in completely was my after my first full meditation retreat, where I had spent 20 hours with my own mind over the course of three days, and there was no getting away from it, mm -hmm. and it was also a really safe situation. Mm. That the, the horrors and the joys and the fears and the excitements that, that all came up over those 20 hours, and the only thing I had to do, the only instruction was to sit with it. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah fires that you think are going on are mostly illusions mm -hmm. and <laughs> there's a whole lot more smoke than fire <laughs> going on mm. and so the personal emergency stops as much as our personal the story may be different if i'm scared that fear feels a lot like it feels for anyone else yes and it may be more or less right but the same for joy ultimately we're, we're all simply looking to feel that we have our needs met we 
are receiving love and we are important enough to people. We're giving love and that that love is being received and it's meaningful. We all want that. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and you can boil it all down to that, mm-hmm. which is so profound to me. Mm-hmm. You can look at any human being walking down the street and they are somehow, if they're chasing anything, it's just one of those three things. Their needs being met, basically. Can they live in the way they think that they need to live? Can they live that way as far as material possessions and ability to eat and so on and so forth? Are they loved? And does their love make a difference in the world? Yeah. We are ultimately always looking for the same things, and we have been for all of the history of humanity. And I think most people have probably had this experience where something grounds you and you feel real. Mm -hmm. You feel sometimes they're very traumatic experiences that do that. Sometimes they're very joyful experiences that do that. It can be some of the hardest times in our life or some of the most joyful times in our life, but all of a sudden everything is crisp and there's no question of the fact that you are there. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the true, the true power of us as human beings. And being able to show that to one another is true bravery. Once we're really at a place where we can just sit with what we are, then we begin to find ourselves. And I think I was lucky enough to have guidance from people who had already been through that process. Mm. So for the people who are listening that maybe want to get into meditation but are afraid of experiencing those like initial attacks of fearful thoughts sure. and those really gruesome thoughts sure. that are so human that we've talked about before. Absolutely. Like um, the example, one example would be when we were in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And you had the, is it called the garbage disposal? Yeah, yeah, where you put food down and flip the switch and it grinds it up. Yeah, and I said <laughs> that when you turn it on, I had like a, I had a thought immediately appear. Like, gosh, I wonder what it would feel like to put your hand sure, down it. Sure, sure. And we just talked about it for a second. And we talked about like the science of like what would happen. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. That is so, I'm so glad that you went there. This sort of idea of dark thoughts that we may spend our lives running from. Yeah. I've been blessed in a way, blessed is a, I use that term very loosely, not religiously, but I've been lucky enough, I guess, to be told psychologically as a child that I had a high level of anxiety and that that meant that my mind would show me the scariest possible option in every context. Mm. I was given the programming as a child to accept that those thoughts are there. And so that was helpful, but I still suffered with it a lot. People with high levels of anxiety, and and a lot of people won't talk about this, they just walk around afraid of themselves because they think every time I see a knife, I think about how that could be stabbing someone. Mm. Every time I see a car, I think about someone getting hit by it. Your amygdala, your, your panic centers of your brain are on, and so you're constantly being shown those possible dangers. And when we sit with those things alone then we begin to self-associate with them and think, well, gosh, I must be a terrible person because I have these thoughts all the time. Mm. But in fact, most people with high levels of anxiety will never act on any of those thoughts. Their, their brains are showing them the scariest possible thing that they would never do. Mm-hmm. Starting there is very, very important. And I think that the best permission I ever got from that was from old American Buddhist writings that stated that during meditation, all thoughts are regarded as thoughts, period. So you could be thinking about saving bunnies, or you could be thinking about murdering children, and they're still regarded as simply thought stuff, Mm -hmm. completely neutrally. That at first is not easy to do. It does take some time, but 
after some practice, it is very easy to begin to just regard anything that is not a present moment experience. As far as I can feel my shirt on my back, I can feel the ground or cushion underneath me, the breath in my lungs. All of that is thought. All the other stuff that's not that is thought. Mm-hmm. And it really gives you permission to just engage with all of the ramblings of your mind in, in a neutral and non-frightening way. Yeah. A whole lot of our abilities, our cognitive abilities, are busy avoiding and fearing our own minds mm-hmm. and who we really are. There's a lot of confusion in the modern spiritualist world about the word ego. Um, and there's a lot of misuse of it. There's a lot of abusive use of it. And I think it's very important for us to be clear on what it means. It's uh, a construct of who we think we should be. And that can come from what we've been taught actively and what we've learned passively. And also the value sets that we have. The entirety of the construct, the shape that you think you need to take, is usually some illusion. Mm-hmm. What I discovered was that I was very busy creating that. And I think most people are very, very busy uh, forcing themselves to be what they think they should be. And in that process, losing what they really are. They have been taught that the last thing you should do is to just very literally completely accept whatever's going on in you. Egos, in general, are still very useful. Yeah. It's more freeing to treat them as clothing that we can change when we please. Mm -hmm. And that means there are certain styles you want to show off. And sometimes your ego has uses. It can warm you or or protect you from the elements of life. But I think realizing that it has less control over us and we have more control over it than we've been taught is Mm -hmm. very, very important. Right. What did you discover once you started giving yourself permission to experience thought as thought and to discern the illusions and the fears versus this is what I'm experiencing right now and I'm going to put my presence into what's happening right now instead of all the scary shit. What did I experience? That's such a great question. Well, first of all, a fullness of life occurred. So my sense is sharpened. I've always been on the borderline of legally blind and uh, just very, very nearsighted. And really? Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah, most people don't uh, know that interacting with me because I've actually mostly never worn glasses and have learned to move around the world based upon sound and sensory input. And long-term training as a martial artist really did accentuate that. In the release process, when I began to just be with my mind and allow for presence, um, colors got brighter, which mm-hmm. makes it very strange to a lot of people to hear that, but the senses of eating became damn near orgasmic. <laughs> um, Your perception changed. My perception changed. I was here for the first time in my life. I wasn't just dreaming. I was here. Mm. So one of the main things that I call our listeners to do is to remember who they really are. I love that. So if we aren't our ego, and if we are having a human experience, sure. we're still having a human experience, then what does that mean that we are? So what really are we? I mean, if I were to boil it down to... The simplest possible way to express it vocally, I would say that we are awareness, pure awareness. And then that awareness, it's spacious and and open and capable of experiencing 
anything mm-hmm. at all. And that's a, that's a little scary. That's a little groundless, right? That's if we if we look at ourselves that way. Again, that's this is why I brought up the ego. Is that once that's once that's uh, the primary experience is just the ability to return back to the simple awareness. Mm. Then you can put on whatever clothes you want. And and of course, I wear the clothes of uh, I teach children martial arts, and I wear the clothes of running an organization that is trying to do good work in the world. And I call myself a martial artist, and I have all this experience with the martial arts, and I call myself a renegade Buddhist teacher sometimes, and I have all this personal experience with Buddhism. And those are clothes I can put on. So it's the groundlessness of knowing that you're just pure awareness is actually can be very freeing as opposed to frightening. Supposedly, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but according to accepted science, we haven't been able to find intelligent life outside of our planet here. And that doesn't mean it's not out there, but it's at least pretty rare as far as where we've looked. And uh, so then if we just come to the fact that our planet holding life is pretty rare, and then we look at our planet in and of itself, the biosphere here is very small compared to the actual mass of the planet. And so then if we zoom further into that biosphere and we see all of the life that's here, the fully self-aware life that's here is very, very rare. Mm. So every day that we wake up self-aware, is quite literally one of the most rare miracles in the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And yet we have the gall to go look in the mirror and say, it's too fat, or it's balding, or it doesn't make enough money, or, you know, all of these ways that we've been taught to dislike ourselves, when in fact we are quite literally possibly the most miraculous thing that the entire universe has ever done. Mm. Right here. This idea that you just have to be to be a miracle. You just have to be there. You don't owe the world anything. You can just be what you are. Mm -hmm. What I like about how you teach is you demonstrate all the principles that you talk about. You don't just talk about them. You live them. And you take action. And something that Marianne Williamson says is to demonstrate is to teach Mm -hmm. in you're an excellent teacher in that way through your work as a musician, um, martial artist, performer, someone that literally dances with fire. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, am I missing something in author? So it does get a little muddy at some point, even my in, even in my own mind. And I don't mean that to be yanking my own chain. I've just been, again, lucky enough to have enough experience at this point with letting go that I just do what works in the moment. But yeah, let's go down the list. It's uh, martial artist, fire performer, musician, producer, um, author, and uh, architect of an NGO. Yeah. Let's talk about that NGO. Sure. Yeah, the Human Unity Movement. Also known as HUM. H-U-M. <laughs> yeah, which pleases me as someone who's done a lot of Sanskrit chanting because uh, <laughs> Padme Hum, you know. The Human Unity Movement is based upon the idea that the massive problems that we find ourselves with in the world right now we're, we're capable as individuals of engaging with them, and they're, and they're largely fixable by us if we were to work in unity. And the only real difficulty with reaching a point of unity is when things are complex, when there's a lot to talk about. 
But if we boil things down very simply to the real issues that we're all seeing in the world, generally issues around environmental sustainability, equality of all people, and compassionate leadership in the world. There aren't many people that you're going to talk to, like I was saying earlier, that say, yes, I would like the environment to fall apart. <laughs> yes, I would like systemic inequality to continue in the world. Um, or yes, I would like discompassionate action to continue in the world. Not, not many people are going to say that. So the idea of the human unity movement is to take those three pillars of environmental sustainability, compassionate action, and equality, and make actions around the creation of, the, of a world that focuses on those three issues very accessible and easy. Right now, one trillion new trees over the next 10 years could bring us to a pre-1850 carbon state. Pre-industrialization, or beginning of industrialization. The immediate reaction when you hear this is, one trillion, that's a lot. <laughs> right? And it, it is a lot. We don't need one trillion to get ourselves to a place where we can extend the timeline. The world needs a bit of a band-aid right now. We are finally starting to wake up to the fact that if we don't make some serious changes, by the 2050s, we're looking at global climate breakdown. And that's scary because it's in most of our lifetimes. But to extend that would take 50 to 100 billion new trees. Yeah. And 50 to 100 billion isn't all that much when you're talking about the fact that we have probably somewhere around three to four billion people on the planet who would be capable of either funding the planting of a tree or planting one themselves. What would happen then if each of those people over the next 10 years decided to be part of the planting of 20 trees? That's it. 20 or 25 trees for each of those people, or even 10. And so our first actions that we've released is making planting accessible. We actually have been able to combine forces with the National Forestry Foundation, and they truly are for every $1 that they receive planting a tree. Mm. So my question to the people of the United States is, do you have $20 over the next 10 years? Do you have property where you can cut an apple open, remove the seeds, let them dry, and plant them this fall? Maybe could you take some of the time you were going to use to post about climate change on Facebook and just donate to, to get some trees planted or get them in the ground? It's one of our first actions because it's simple. So the entire point of the human unity movement is to make activism and solutions very, very accessible for people. Because I, I don't believe that people uh, are unwilling to engage with these issues. I just think that there's such a rat race around it. There's such a loop of communication that we're put in a place where we think we're quite disempowered. We think that the best you can do is click share. What needs to be inspired within people to take that action and initiative? For the people who are caring right now quite a bit about, say, climate change, because that's the topic we're on, the amount of emotional energy that goes into that, the amount of feeling defeated, the amount of fear, the amount of anger, all of that is a lot of work. And I think that when you... Mound on top of all of that work, all of that emotional labor, the idea of then doing something, giving some of your hard-earned money away, even a small amount, or taking time out of your day to go plant some apple trees this fall. When you compound those things, it sounds like too much. Mm -hmm. And people, they don't have anything left. Right. But when you say, look, this is how you wipe that away, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to feel guilty. You need to be inspired. If we then take the little bit of drumming up of fear and upset and we turn it towards, no, but you can solve this mm -hmm. and you can feel good about solving this and helping them realize that they can come out of doing a little bit of extra work feeling really good. 
and mm-hmm. having gained mm-hmm. in their own personal way instead of just having given more. That shift in perspective is so incredibly different. The contrast. Because not only do you have the sustainability aspect of it, but you also have the equality and the compassion that in all of them fuel each other. Because really what we're talking about is that in order for our world to care about sustainability, you need to have compassion and you need to make sure that the system, the institutions that we have, that are associated with sustainability, are equal. They are the same movement. We have to see that. Engaging with a sustainable, compassionate, equal world, that is simply creating the world that we all intrinsically are born wanting to live in. The entire idea that it's not my problem, I think that that stems from I don't know how to engage, Mm -hmm. and I'm afraid to engage, and I don't feel good enough to engage. Mm Mm-hmm. That as soon as we turn that around, then you immediately are going to engage with these things in your world. You're immediately going to shut down that racist joke at work. You're immediately going to be more likely to see a person as a person regardless of the color of their skin. You're Mm -hmm. immediately going to be more likely to try and work towards a lack of homelessness in your community. Yeah. Because you know you can. And because you know it hurts more not to. That there's, in fact, you can sit and hide from it and that hurts. Or you can joyfully engage and that's work. But it's joyful work. Mm. Because you're empowered, because you're making a real difference. I work with a wonderful human being named Marcia, who is actually the architect of the Equality Pillar, and um, I work in support on that pillar. But I will speak a bit about it because it's important that to, to really, I think, look at the idea that we are very separate in even the movement around equality. So we often end up in situations where a lot of very well-meaning people who are not affected by systemic inequality, i.e. white folks, are sitting together either online or in a room or wherever and discussing how to be helpful. And we're often having sort of white liberal discussions that are very well-meaning, but ultimately not all that actionable and also not very well-informed because we're not stopping to talk to the people of color who are oppressed. So one of the first things that we're going to be doing is holding workshops around how to be an ally, in which we invite all of these very well-meaning folks to come and listen to a person of color or a trans person to a room full of people who really want to help. So that 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 person, that individual human being can come and say, I am affected by systemic oppression in this way, and here are some ways you can help me. And it's important to note that the onus, the burden of that shouldn't be on the oppressed, right? It, it should not be on people of color and trans folks to explain to everyone else what they need. That shouldn't be their responsibility. But some people in those communities do want to be heard and do feel that that's something that they feel called to do. And mm-hmm. those people should have a platform. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and our job is largely to hold that space and get everyone into that room and, and then sit there. I mean, as, as a cis-presenting, I'm bisexual, but as a cis-presenting white man in America, um, it is my job, I see, to simply hold that space and to sit down and listen. The idea is to hold these meetings in cities all over the country because systemic oppression is dynamic and subtle mm. as well as blatant. And the issues are going to be different community to community. So the most important thing we can do is gather the people who want to help, gather the people who are being affected, and have them listen to one another. 
Then we're in a state of unity. Yes. We talked a lot about how to inspire people in a way that's empowered and uplifting. We talked about seeing the opportunity of the human experience and not so much the limitations. We talked about really showing up for the world and how to really care and be present and to live in a way that celebrates being alive and to not just be stuck in a dream. Mm. I feel like everything that we talked about all ties together and there's this there's this thread that I feel like you can connect all of it. So I guess the question would be where do you hope hum directs the community? Is to to free that inspiration from just one leadership role or from one voice in the movement and to instead of having heroes that are individuals to have a heroic community. It's it's very very simple for us all to show up and the best thing would be if everyone felt empowered to show up and joyful to show up that this was a, a almost a, a pastime something we did for fun to make the world a better place something we did because we enjoyed it something we did because it helped us meet people something we did because it helped enrich our lives and if if there's a thread between all of it on a philosophical level or a implementable emotional and cognitive level i would say we've heard before in a lot of spirituality as above so below mm-hmm. and i love that but in this we're going to reverse it to or change it to as inside so outside mm-hmm. so how we treat ourselves is how we treat the world around us and how we view ourselves is how we view the world around us simply those are the limitations and also the expansive freedoms of how we can interact with the world is how we treat ourselves so ultimately i would love to see people cherish themselves as miracles to the point where they realize that the world around them is a miracle and there's no choice but to engage lovingly the idea that we are all miracles and that the world that we're living in is a miracle and that it it not only needs us but it deserves us and we not only need ourselves but we deserve ourselves i think when that becomes an obvious and self-apparent point the world will be fine and i think we're headed there it, i think we are very potentially headed for a renaissance of the mind the spirit and the body a new earth a new earth we're building it right now you who are listening are a miracle you who are listening are standing somewhere in your own shoes both physically emotionally and actually for a third cognitively in a way you right now who's hearing this in a way that no one else can be you have gifts to give to the world and honestly the single most selfish thing that you could do is is to do what they've taught you to do is hide that please do what you need to feel healthiest happiest most joyful so that we can have access to the gifts you came to this planet with we need you now and the best way to show up is to be completely in love with exactly what you are fall in love with yourself with no conditions i'm so excited to see where hum goes from here <laughs> me too <laughs> i'm inspired and excited and it's going to be wonderful mm. and i know that no matter what kind of work you engage with it's always in a way that teaches and demonstrates to people how to care for themselves and care for humanity and it's all just really incredible 
and miraculous work. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Malu. Thank you, Allie. It's been wonderful. Malou's book, Being Human Now, is available on Amazon using the link in the description. Additional links are provided to learn how to get involved with the human unity movement and the mindfulness initiative. Thank you for listening today. You are loved so profoundly. Thank you for being here at this time to assist in the evolution of humanity. Thank you for being a leader of the self-love movement. Remember who you really are. Love always. And I'll meet you at the next one. Thank you.